with you tonight. Um, I have been incredibly challenged by the text that we went through this last Sunday. Um, how many of you out there struggle to find rest and good rhythms in your life? I think there's a couple of hands raised right here. Fantastic. I am the same, and I have been just profoundly impacted by this text and the challenge that it's brought to my own life. And I just felt compelled for us to dig a little bit deeper tonight and look more at what, is, what does God say about rest? How can we practice some of these, some of these rhythms? But before we get to our text, I was really struck uh, by something I read a couple of weeks ago. Um, Oxford University did a study. And what they found is that in 2018, America, Americans uh, set a new record with regard to vacation. Any guesses as to this new record we set with regard to vacations? Very close, yes. We accumulated in this country 768 million vacation days that we did not take, which was a record. Yeah, exactly. 15% higher than the year previous. Why do you suppose that is? Sure, all of those are good reasons, but here's the thing. They dug a little bit deeper because they wanted to, to find out why is this? What is driving this trend where we're accumulating these vacation days? They're sitting right there in our PTO bank and they're not being used. Here's what they found. The number one reason had nothing to do with finances. They had the time available. They had the blessing of their bosses to go on vacation. They had the money with which to go on vacation and they simply chose not to. And the number one factor that they cited was it was too hard to leave their workplace. They were so tied to their jobs that even though it was sitting here waiting for them, they chose to go, nah, I don't need a vacation. I don't want a vacation. I want to share with you some of the quotes that the survey found because they're really telling. They said, it's easier if I just stay and power through. I don't want to get behind. I don't like the idea of work piling up so I couldn't actually relax. How many of us find ourselves there? It's just better for me to stay and keep grinding. And then finally, this one's my personal favorite. Vacations are for sissies. Those are the reasons that people cited for accumulating all this time and choosing not to take it. And that is the culture in which we live. And I'm guilty of this, and perhaps you are as well. I might not write it down like this, and I might not verbalize it, but in my mind, I'm guilty of thinking these thoughts. I'm not going to take a rest. It's just easier for me to power through. If you want anything done right, you better just do it yourself. These are lies that we tell ourselves. And it leads to this pace and this cadence in our life that we just cannot sustain. And I have been struck this week as we've looked at this passage where God says, work six and rest one. Work six and rest one. It's interesting that we sort of wear our busyness like a badge of honor. I hear conversations that I'm in, and I even say it too. We almost try to one-up each other with how busy we are. Oh, I worked 70 hours this week. We say that like it's a badge. My kid's on four soccer teams. Fantastic. Why are we bragging about this? But that's what the culture is driving us towards. And when you, when you couple the culture and the trends that we see and our own sin nature, it leads to this schedule that we simply cannot keep. And it's so unhealthy for us. And what we find in Scripture is that this is not a new phenomenon. The human propensity to pack oneself so tightly 
has been around for millennia. And we find it even in the book of Exodus. And one of my very favorite passages that we've studied thus far comes from chapter 18. Chapter 18 is the chapter where Moses meets with Jethro, the priest of Midian, his father-in-law. Maybe you guys remember what happened. God has done some incredible things in the life of Israel. He's delivered them, and they hadn't seen each other in some time. And chapter 18 records that Moses came, and Jethro came to him, and they found each other, and they hugged each other, and then they swapped stories about what God had done in their lives. Moses told him about coming across the sea, about how God delivered them. The elders were there and Aaron was there and Jethro and they hug and they worship God and they sing together and they celebrate what God's done. And it's this beautiful uh, exchange. And then Jethro, like a good father-in-law, he kind of turns to Moses and he starts observing the habits that Moses was cultivating. And I have a very good father-in-law myself, so I picture my father-in-law, Bill, like, so that's interesting that you chose to do it that way, Sam. Like, that's exactly what's happening here. And Jethro looks at Moses, and chapter 18 records that Moses, from sunup to sundown, was surrounded by people. And what he was doing was he was talking to them and adjudicating certain things that had come up within the life of that community. And Jethro is observing this. And I love what he says to Jeth, to uh, Moses, rather. He watches Moses do this, and this is what he says in Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 and 18. He says, what you are doing is not good. I love the simplicity of that. <laughs> this is not good, what you're doing. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone, Jethro says. What's the point that Jethro is making here to Moses? This is, this is not sustainable, Moses. You cannot do this. And he qualifies it. He says, not only is it not good for you not to have rest, it's not good for the people around you either. Because two things happen. One, you get so tired that you're no good to anybody. And two, the people around you don't get to participate in what God's doing in the life in the nation of Israel. And so Jethro brilliantly helps him kind of create some infrastructure around how people are going to have their needs met, how they're going to share the load together. And what's beneath all of this is that they're, they're, they're creating ways and they're building habits and rhythms to give each other rest. Exactly, wherever that was. This same idea is expounded upon in chapter 23. As, as we come to chapter 23, God's done some incredible things. He's brought the nation of Israel out of slavery. He's brought them across the sea. He's delivered them from their enemies. He's delivered them from the Amalekites. He's given them victory. He's given them food. He's given them water. He's brought them back to the mountain and he's given them the law and he said, this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to show yourselves and the rest of the world who I am and my character and you're going to be my image bearers. And we come to chapter 23 and we come to this reinforcement of a pattern that he's already talked about that goes all the way back to the garden when God creates everything in six days and then he steps back and the scriptures record in Genesis that he nestles in and he just finds rest and he just observes and absorbs the goodness around him. And so he says in verse 10 through 13 in chapter 23, like we studied last week, with regard to land, you're going to follow the same pattern. 
You're going to work it for six years. You're going to till the soil. You're going to harvest good crops. Work hard. And then let it lie fallow, which means don't do anything to it for a whole year. And let the poor in your community come and eat. And let the, the sojourners come and eat. And the beasts come and eat. And then he moves on and he talks about people. And he says, work six and rest one. Now, I'm grateful that we live in this country where we work five and supposedly rest two. They had a less favorable scenario here. But work six and rest one. And he qualifies it. He says, not just you, Hebrews, but your servants and any travelers who are with you and even the animals, everybody. Work six, rest one. And then he moves and he talks about these festivals, these three times a year where they're going to get together and they're going to have food and they're going to celebrate. And the whole point of Sabbath rest and of these festivals was to point each other back to God, their great provider, to establish these rhythms and these habits so they could literally sit back and just look around and go, wow, God is incredible in our lives. Look what he's done for us. He's here in our midst. He's provided for us. The principle is really that simple. Stop and absorb and observe God's goodness and let that propel you forward to have more and to cultivate more of what God envisioned. Now this was and this is still a wonderful idea. And as what we find as we read throughout Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch is that as Israel obeyed this commandment to rest and to find Sabbath, they were blessed. They had a full life, a complete life, which is what the number seven represents. Here's what we also find. As a result of disobedience, they were given over to the Babylonians and the Assyrians and they were held captive for decades because they disobeyed this law. This is a serious, serious thing that God was instilling here. And over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, this wonderful instruction about finding rest and creating rhythms to find Sabbath, it shifted. The rules and the regulations took on new forms thanks to the involvement of folks like the Pharisees who took something good that God gave to humanity and they twisted it. And they made it legalistic and they changed it because they had an agenda. Now Jesus enters the scene in the first century and he has no intention of obeying these man-made rules that stray from God's intended purpose. We, we see this in the Gospels. It's one of my favorite things to read about in the Gospels. When Jesus is met by the Pharisees and these legalistic folks who tried to catch him in a lie and Jesus just had these perfect responses where he just comes back at them with the truth. And this is on full display. And in all of the first three Gospels, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 and and see what he says here. But Jesus, in this particular incident, he's called out by the Pharisees because the Pharisees want to catch him breaking the laws of the Sabbath. And what's taking place is that Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field and they're just grabbing some grain to feed themselves because they're hungry. And so the Pharisees always trying to catch Jesus in something. They see this and they come to Jesus. And in a very passive-aggressive way, like the Pharisees often did, they're like, so Jesus, um, I noticed that your disciples were grabbing some food as you walked through the field. Now you know it's the Sabbath. Is it lawful for you to do this? They ask Jesus. And again, they don't care about the breaking of Sabbath 
they've turned this into a legalistic rule-following thing so they can try to catch Jesus off guard. Jesus cannot be caught off guard, and he has a perfect response. And recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, he says, "Uh, yeah, let's talk about that, Pharisees. First of all, let's talk about the priests in the Old Testament who, by definition, were working on the Sabbath because they were lighting candles and and they were making sacrifices and they were making it ready for other people to come and worship on Sabbath. How do you feel about those guys? If What's more, let's talk about King David and the folks who were with him when they were hungry and they went into the temple and they took the bread of the presence and they ate it, which was a sacred bread in the holy place. That wasn't wrong. How do you feel about that? And Pharisees didn't have much to say because they had been put in their place as they will oftentimes throughout the life of Jesus. And he completely dismantles their argument. And then he concludes with this. Jesus says to them, after talking to them about how they had twisted something good, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a profound thing that Jesus is saying here, and it would have turned some heads. And he's saying primarily two things that he will expound upon in the rest of his ministry. But he's saying two things. One, he's saying that he is God. He's saying that he is an equal part of the triune Godhead. He is the creator. He was present from the very beginning, and therefore the creator cannot be subject to something that's created like the Sabbath. The second thing that he's claiming, which he will go on to describe later, is that he came to fulfill the law and everything that was foretold by the prophets. So the Pharisees, in response to this profound statement and gesture by Jesus, they have nothing to say. And so the gospel writers record that they just withdrew, but they planned to to find another avenue of attack. Now, Jesus makes this claim that he came to fulfill the law and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But what we find is that even though he had authority over the Sabbath, Jesus himself lived by regular patterns and rhythms of rest. He was extremely proactive when it came to seeking rest. And it's my personal opinion that it's very possible that Jesus was, in fact, an introvert. Don't quote me on that, but it's just a personal opinion. Here's what I'd like to do tonight. Jesus, who was the Lord of the Sabbath and has all authority in heaven and on earth, still made time for rest. And what I'd like to do tonight is look at a few examples of the patterns and the habits that Jesus himself cultivated and look at it and go, how can this shape the way that we think about rest? How can this maybe shift our paradigm in the way in which we look at ourselves, the way in which we look at each other, and the way in which we look at the lifestyle to which we're called, one of rest and fullness with God. You guys in? Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for this time and the space that you have given us this evening to gather here. We have already been able to worship you through singing and praise you for who you are and for your goodness. And Father, I just ask that as we engage in your words tonight, that you would illuminate this truth to us in a new and a fresh way. May it sink into our minds and into our hearts, into new places. 
Continue to mold us into people who reflect your love and your grace to each other and to those around us. And Lord, may tonight help us get rid of some of the lies that we tell ourselves, that we're only as good as what we do, that rest is for the weak. May you fill us with your truth. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you are active, that you are present, and that you reveal yourself to us tonight and reveal the truth of your word as we engage with it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't turned already, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark tonight. We're going to look at a a few accounts that Mark, the Gospel writer, records about Jesus. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 41. Now, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, his cousin, has paved the way for him, and he's gathered a couple of his disciples by this point, but he hadn't gathered all of the 12 yet. As we engage with this text, he had just finished an extremely busy day healing the sick, taking care of those who were possessed by demons, and and, and building community. In fact, he built such a good community that the text in Mark records that when Jesus went home, people literally came and just gathered around his door waiting for him to do something because he was establishing this reputation as quite a teacher and a powerful one at that. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark 1. We'll read verses 35 through 41, rather. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now we know from this particular account and from several other accounts in the Gospels that this was a habit that Jesus cultivated on a regular basis. And this is what the gospel writers record. He got up early. He went to a desolate place, which means he was somewhere where he could actually be alone. And he just prayed. Now, this isn't a new concept for the people who are gathered here tonight, I wouldn't imagine. But think about this. Jesus, fully God, fully man, also goes and finds quiet spaces. After a very busy day, by the way, he gets up early and he carves out time and he carves out space and he goes into God's presence, the Father, and he just prays and he just listens. And we know from other gospel accounts that most of the time it was a fairly simple prayer. Father, have your will done in my life. This is a rhythm and a habit that we need to get into. And for me personally, this is one I need to cultivate. Because most of the time when I find a quiet place and I come to God in prayer, I have a to-do list for God. Hey, God, here's all the things I'd love for you to take care of for me. It's how I think. And here we see Jesus in preparation for his own ministry. He comes to the Father and he says, Father, your will be done in my life. What does that look like today? We need to cultivate this practice of carving out quiet, alone time with the Lord and just saying very simply, God, what would you like to do with me today? What story are you telling and how am I a part of that? Maybe you're not a morning person. That's fine. We're in the car quite a bit. 
You can have this kind of time in the car. Don't close your eyes, by the way, but you can pray and you can simply ask the Father instead of bringing your list to him, you can say, God, what are you doing today? I wanna just pause and just ask you, what would you like to do? And then listen. And listen for more than five seconds before you interject. That's what I do. Just be quiet. And just listen. And he's going to communicate with you. We need to get in rhythms and habits that allow us to do this. Let's journey with Jesus a little further in his ministry. Mark chapter 4. By this point, Jesus had called all 12 of his disciples. He'd performed all kinds of signs and miracles. And he was on the heels as we pick up in chapter 4. The gospel writers record that Jesus taught through a series of parables. And what the gospels record is that Jesus would teach these parables to the crowds. And then he would explain the meaning of them to the disciples. Now, much to my chagrin... The the conversations that Jesus has with the disciples where he explains the meaning of the parables are kind of thin and they're few and far between. So we get the parables that we're supposed to unpack together. But he's finished a series of parables and he's finished explaining them to the disciples. And we pick up in Mark chapter 4. Let's read verses 35 through 31. On that day, when evening had come, He said to them, let us go across to the other side, speaking about Lake Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, why do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who's heard this before? This is, a, this is an awesome story. And Jesus is doing a few things here. But there was a detail that I had never caught before until this last couple of weeks when I read it. What's happening here is that Jesus, very simply, Jesus is saying, let's go to the other side of Galilee. At this point in Jesus' ministry, this was very commonplace for them because he was pretty famous by this point. So they would travel by boat to the other side of the sea. He would teach and do his thing and then they'd get back into the boat and they'd go to another part of Galilee and he would do the same thing. So this was very commonplace for them to just get in a boat, go to the other side, do some more ministry. But here we find Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat. Yes, I had to look up what stern means. It's not the front, it's the back of the boat. I don't have a nautical background. But he's sleeping in the back of the boat on a cushion and this windstorm comes up. Now, I've I've been to Lake Galilee and I've seen this happen. It can be a totally calm day and the sea can be just calm as can be like glass And then the wind comes up over the hill and comes down into the valley of Galilee and you see white caps like that. This happens quite often. We also know that the boats were pretty small. Don't picture like a big ship. This is a pretty small boat. So the fact that Jesus was able to, as water was coming in and as a windstorm comes in, the fact that he was able to sleep 
means what? He was exhausted. Exactly. And this is what I had never caught before. Mark says this as as Jesus has this conversation with, with his disciples. And he says, let's get in and let's go across. Do you catch what Mark records here? Let's go back to it. The very beginning of this passage says, let's go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. How was he? He was exhausted, absolutely exhausted from the ministry that he was doing. And so he gets in the boat and he finds a spot with a cushion and he falls asleep. Here's what's profound about this to me. This was a very chaotic situation. Literally, water was coming into the boat. The disciples were panicking. Things were going nuts. But Jesus was tired, so he took a nap. Just think about that for a second. How often do we convince ourselves that we're too busy to stop and just take a nap? When we're tired, if you're anything like me, Oftentimes, that's just an indicator that I need to work a little bit harder. I can't be tired. I can't stop. I got to finish. Jesus himself, with chaos going on around him, finds a spot in a wet, windy boat and falls asleep. And notice what he says when they wake him up. Does he apologize? No. They just wake him up. And he uses his authority to calm the sea. And whereas the disciples before were afraid that they were going to die, now they're afraid of the power they see that Jesus has because they're like, whoa, the sea just like stopped. This is a powerful story. When you're tired, take a rest. It doesn't make you weak. Take a rest. Take a nap with chaos going on around you. Emulate Jesus and rest. A New Testament scholar named Robert Allen Cole said of this, the Lord's sleep did not only show his very natural weariness, it also showed his tranquil faith. And I love the way that he articulates that. Here's Jesus, who is never in a hurry, who is never in panic mode. He just stayed the course. And when he was tired, he rested. I need that message. Take a break. When you're tired, take a break. Jesus shows us how to do that. We'll look at one last example. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read verses 30 through 34. But I have to give some context because there's some really bizarre things that happen in Mark chapter 6 prior to where we pick up. So Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was in prison. And he was thrown in prison by the leader in Galilee that was hired by Rome named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had... John the Baptist thrown into prison. So he was in prison as Jesus started his ministry. What's recorded in this part of Mark is that uh, Herod Antipas had a party. 
and he invited his sort of entourage, his friends and the men of Galilee to this party, and they were partying, and this woman came in, and she entertained the men in the room, and as a sign of gratitude, Herod Antipas, in front of his entourage, says, I'll give you anything that you ask for. So this girl recognizes that this is a significant opportunity to get something good, so she leaves, and she goes to her mother, and she asks her mother, what should I ask for? Herod just said I could have anything I want, up to half of his kingdom, he said, which is significant. And her mother instructs her, tell him to kill John the Baptist. So she goes back to Herod Antipas in front of his entourage and said, I'd like, Her- I'd like John's head on a platter. And so Herod is stuck in this weird situation where he doesn't really want to do that, but he can't lose face in front of his buddies, and so he has it done. He sends somebody to the prison, they execute him, and bring John the Baptist's head back to the party. It's a bizarre situation in a gruesome way for John the Baptist to lose his life. Now, the reason I tell you that is because it's significant that Mark tells us this right before this interaction with Jesus and the disciples because what, we're, what we learn here is that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, with whom he was a close friend of his, and the disciples would have known him as well. They had a, a healthy friendship and relationship. They were partners in ministry. And John had just lost his life. Let's pick up in Mark 6, 30 through 34. Uh, the passage right before records that the disciples came and got his body and uh, put him in a tomb. Mark 6, 30 through 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, speaking about Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Let's pause right there. If you keep reading, what you will read about is the very famous feeding of the 5,000. Jesus multiplies fish and the loaves of bread, and everybody there is fed in abundance, and they have leftovers. And that's a wonderful story about how Jesus provides, and it's, it's beautiful. But are you struck by what happens just before that? Remember the context. Jesus had just lost his dear cousin to a gruesome death. The disciples had just lost a close friend and partner in ministry. And what does Jesus say to them? Does he say, soldier on, we got stuff to do. No. In fact, the gospel writers even tell us that they didn't even have time to eat. That's how packed their schedule was. That's how famous Jesus was becoming because of his teaching and his demonstration of his authority. Everybody knew where they were. Everybody knew who they were. And in the midst of this tragedy, Jesus says to his 12, come on, come with me. 
to a desolate place. What is he saying to them? Let's go grieve together. Don't worry about the agenda. Don't worry about the ministry that's being done. This is a tragic thing that's happened. Let's go be alone together. Let's get away to a desolate place and just emote, just sit, just rest, just grieve together. And what I love with Jesus and his emotional capacity to connect with them and grieve with them, do you see how he protects them? Because they're so famous that when Jesus says, come on, let's, let's, guys, I got you. Come on, let's go grieve. We lost our dear brother. Come on. People see them and they know where they're headed. And so they run on foot and they actually beat the boat to the shore. Well, what does Jesus do? Do you catch it? He alone goes ashore, which means the disciples were allowed to be in the boat. And my guess, it doesn't say this in the text, I'm inferring this, but my guess is that they were so spent, they just needed a little bit of time to cry together and to think about their friend that they just lost. And Jesus builds space for them to do that. Because even though they got to the place and there's a crowd waiting for them, it says Jesus went to shore so that they could stay. And then what does it say about Jesus? What does he have on the crowd there? Compassion, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Look at how gorgeous a shepherd Jesus is here. As he meets the needs of the people who don't have a shepherd and he teaches them, but he lets his disciples grieve and have rest alone in the boat. You guys, this is remarkable what Jesus is doing here. And he's setting a precedent for us. When you need to grieve, do it. Get people with you. Don't pretend like you don't need it. Don't pretend like things don't get us down. Don't act like it's weak to cry. Jesus literally carves out space to grieve the loss of their beloved John the Baptist. And he allows them to stay in the boat while he goes and ministers to these sheep without a shepherd because he has compassion on them and he has compassion on his disciples. Amen. I'm struck by the compassion of Jesus here. And in this passage, I quickly jump to the feeding of the 5,000 that have gone right past this beautiful display of this amazing shepherd who prioritized rest who regardless of the schedule carved out time to find a desolate place and pray to the Father, to find a desolate place or the stern of a ship and sleep, to grieve the loss of a friend despite so many people pulling on his tunic. He prioritized rest. He, he developed patterns and habits to allow him to rest, that even when they didn't have leisure time to eat, he made it a priority. So whether or not your schedule allows this is irrelevant. If you're too busy to rest, you're too busy. If you're too busy to grieve, you're too busy. Jesus shows us this. So let us emulate him. 
He says quite beautifully in, in one of those prayers that we were talking about to the Father that's recorded in Matthew chapter 11. He says a couple of things. He says, come to him. And he says, emulate him. Come to me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that a gorgeous prayer that Jesus utters to the Father? You would think that he's talking to a large crowd here. If you didn't know what was happening, wouldn't you think he was talking to people? He's praying here in preparation for the ministry that he's going to continue. And what he's saying to the Father is that the Father has called him to come and to be our rest. Here's what he means by that. In the Old Testament, as we have studied, the Israelites, the nation of Israel, had to make sacrifices. They had to make atonement for their sin. They had to follow rules about Sabbath. They had to do things by the book in order to maintain in God's favor. All of that was pointing towards Jesus because Jesus came and he was our perfect sacrifice. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He did what none of us could do. And the rest that we find in him is the fact that if you place your faith in Christ, you don't have to worry about your works earning favor with God. And in that reality is true peace and rest. Because Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And when we start believing the lie that only weak people rest, when we start believing the lie that I'm as good as what I do or what people think about me, we're ignoring the gospel truth that our works don't get us anywhere. It's what Jesus has done for us that gives us salvation. And in that reality, there is rest and fulfillment and wholeness. And so Jesus in his prayer to the Father says, come to me. I'm going to give you rest because of what I've done for you. And in that same prayer, he says, learn from me, emulate me, do what I did, prioritize rest, get to a desolate place, build rhythms and patterns into your life that point you to God's provision. That's what we're called to do. And I'm praying that I personally, that my family, that my church family do this better. Because we live in a culture that propels us in a different direction. And here we see in both the Old and the New Testament that God says, my people are going to be people who rest. And I want more of that. Come to me and I will give you rest. Let's come to him in prayer this evening. God, we are just grateful for what you have done for us. And just as you did with the nation of Israel, when we had nothing to offer you, you came down and you rescued us. You pursued us with your love. And you saved us with your grace. So we just take a moment and we reflect on the beauty of what you have done for us. And God, I'm grateful that you call us to experience your rest. 
to recognize that if we place our faith in Christ, that when you look at us, you see the righteousness of Christ because our sin has been atoned for and there is such great rest in that reality. I pray that you would help us to carve better rhythms and better patterns in our life to be able to seek restful opportunities to just stop and reflect and look at the goodness that you have put around us. So God, help us as individuals, help us as a church, prioritize rest. Be with us as we continue to worship you this evening and be glorified in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a few more songs as we always do. And we want you to know that the bread and the cup are back there for you to go as individuals or as a family or couples or whatever. But let's continue to worship and find rest in what Jesus has done for us. And as we celebrate with the bread and the cup, may we recognize that we are made whole in him and in that there is peace and rest. Let's worship together.